This is Our American Stories, and on our show, we often like to ask writers to read what they've written. And by the way, not just big writers and famous writers and writers for the Washington Post or the big newspapers of this country or the big magazines, just ordinary folks who post something. It doesn't, well, you don't have to be a writer to be a writer. And this writer in particular was the international admissions director for Dartmouth College. It can be hard to know which students to admit to a place like Dartmouth. It's really competitive to get in. But one year there was a student that stood out above the rest. Here is Rebecca Sabke reading her article for us. Check this box if you're a good person. When I give college information sessions at high schools, I'm used to being swarmed by students. Usually, as soon as my lecture ends, they run up to me to hand me their resumes, fighting for my attention so that they could tell me about their internships or summer science programs. But last spring, after I spoke at a New Jersey public school, I ran into an entirely different kind of student. When the bell rang, I stuffed my leftover pamphlets into a bag and began to navigate the human tsunami that is a high school hallway at lunchtime. Just before I reached the parking lot, someone tapped me on the shoulder. Excuse me, ma'am, a student said, smiling through a set of braces. You dropped a granola bar on the floor of the cafeteria. I chased you down since I thought you'd want your snack. Before I could even thank him, he handed me the bar and dissolved into the sea of teenagers. Working in undergraduate admissions at Dartmouth College has introduced me to many talented young people. I used to be the director of international admissions and I'm now working part-time after having a baby. Every year, I'd read over 2,000 college applications from students all over the world. The applicants are always intellectually curious and talented. They climb mountains, had extracurricular clubs, and develop new technologies. They're the next generation's leaders. The problem is that in a deluge of promising candidates, many remarkable students become indistinguishable from one another, at least on paper. It is incredibly difficult to choose whom to admit. Yet, in the chaos of SAT scores, extracurriculars, and recommendations, one quality is always irresistible in a candidate. Kindness. It's a trait that would be hard to pinpoint on applications, even if colleges ask the right questions. Every so often, though, it can't help but shine through. The most surprising indication of kindness I've ever come across in my admissions career came from a student who went to a large public school in New England. He was clearly bright, as evidenced by his class rank and teacher's praise. He had a supportive recommendation from his college counselor and an impressive list of extracurricular. Even with these qualifications, he might not have stood out. But one letter of recommendation caught my eye. It was from a school custodian. Letters of recommendation are typically superfluous, written by people who the applicant thinks will impress a school. We regularly receive letters from former presidents, celebrities, trustee relatives, and Olympic athletes. But they generally fail to provide us with another angle on who the student is or could be as a member of our community. This letter was different. The custodian wrote that he was compelled to support the student's candidacy because of his thoughtfulness. This young man was the only person in the school who knew the names of every member of the janitorial staff. He turned off lights in empty rooms, consistently thanked the hallway monitor each morning, and tidied up after his peers, even if nobody was watching. This student, the custodian wrote, had a refreshing respect for every person at the school, regardless of position, popularity, or clout. Over 15 years and 30,000 applications in my admissions career, I had never seen a recommendation from a school custodian. It gave us a window onto a student's life in the moments when nothing counted. That student was admitted by unanimous vote of the admissions committee. There are so many talented applicants and precious few spots. We know how painful this must be for students. 
As someone who was rejected by the school where I ended up as a director of admissions, I know firsthand how devastating the words we regret to inform you can be. Until admissions committees figure out a way to effectively recognize the genuine but intangible personal qualities of applicants, we must rely on little things to make the difference. Sometimes an inappropriate email address is more telling than a personal essay. The way a student acts toward his parents on a campus tour can mean as much as a standardized test score. And, as I learned from that custodian, a sincere character evaluation from someone unexpected will mean more to us than any boilerplate recommendation from a former president or famous golfer. Next year, there might be a flood of custodian recommendations, thanks to this essay. But if it means students will start paying as much attention to the people who clean their classrooms as they do their principals and teachers, I'm happy to help start that trend. Colleges should foster the growth of individuals who show promise, not just in leadership and academics, but also in generosity of spirit. Since becoming a mom, I've also been looking at applications differently. I can't help anticipating my son's own dive into the college admissions frenzy 17 years from now. Whether or not he even decides to go to college when the time is right, I want him to resemble a person thoughtful enough to return a granola bar and gracious enough to respect every member in his community. And thank you, Rebecca, for sharing that. And my goodness, I would have let the student in too. And by the way, we're going to be covering a story uh, that came out of the New York Times recently, and it had to do with Harvard. This is one of the first years that they've decided to not let people in because of Facebook posts. So as you're talking to your kids, know that they're now looking at Facebook posts, how you conduct yourself, what you say, stupid stuff you do, lewd stuff, inappropriate stuff you do, and thank goodness, I wish, I wish we'd all get on this. It's a big problem in the country. And uh, good for Harvard uh, for doing that. And thank you again uh, for sharing that story with us, Rebecca Sapke uh, at Dartmouth College. And we also love to hear from you, uh, the members of our audience. And you're about to hear a story from one of our listeners in Chicago, Clay Stroop. I was in the waiting room at the doctor just for a routine checkup and next to me was an elderly woman with her daughter the older woman evidently had some form of dementia and her daughter was showing pictures and explaining with great patience that the two little girls in the photos are her great-granddaughters after some explaining and finally understanding the elderly woman proclaimed you mean I'm a great-grandmother that's wonderful Judging by the look on the daughter's face, it was probably the 100th time she's explained it, but she still treated it like the first. I tell you, it took all I could to keep from getting up and hugging everyone and keeping it all together. Love is so powerful. And it is, and we can always take those kind of short messages from you. Send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And thank you, Clay, for sharing that. And again, thank you, Rebecca Sabke of Dartmouth College. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
we continue with our American stories, and every once in a while, we like to go along with a good book. And today we bring you John Bradshaw, who wrote The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. And John, let's begin with a quote from your book. Quote, Today we relate to animals much differently than our forebearers did. Our thinking about animals has changed dramatically over the past century or so. Talk about that quote. Well, the animals that live in our houses, we've, we've changed the way we think about them because they've become companions rather than simply pieces of equipment. I mean, this is what uh, your average American dog was 150 years ago, was regarded as something that's useful to have around um, for whatever purpose. He might be herding, he might be guarding, he might be hunting. But uh, the any sort of companionship that that dog gave was kind of secondary, although it was important because the the bond between the dog and the the master or the mistress um, would have been an essential part of that working relationship. If the dog hadn't been bonded to the person looking after it and using it, then the whole relationship would not have worked. So, you know, we can't dismiss the whole thing of companionship. It's a common thread that runs all the way through. But nevertheless, the, the real purpose, the real function of these animals has changed to be one of almost complete companionship now. Um, and I think there's, a, there's another movement as well, if we're talking a little bit more widely about the kinds of animals that uh, we, we eat and we farm, um, then the rights of those animals, I think, uh, is probably only the last 150 years or so that those have been taken seriously by the majority of the population. And you now have very strong movements to you know, improve the way that Uh, farm animals are kept you have people who disagree entirely with eating meat which would have been very unusual uh, in America Um, certainly even what 150 years ago vegan uh, vegetarianism was almost unheard of Um, the average American thought that chicken was a vegetarian dish you know the, the things have changed a great deal in the last century or so so We've changed the way we think about animals in general. We've given them far more personality, more rights, but very much more than that, the animals that are in our homes, in the suburbs and the cities, uh, dogs and cats particularly are there for companionship and not uh, as tools. Almost a quarter of households, you write, in the United Kingdom and over a third in the United States have one or more dogs and cats share a roof with 30% of U.S. families and about 17% of UK families. So we're going to focus mostly on those two animals. Why did they win the pet lottery, John? Well, I think the short answer, it's, it's rather a trivial one, but I think it's because they were there. We had domesticated the two species, the dog and the cat, for very different purposes. The cat domesticated in a sense, um, but, not, but still allowed to run pretty wild because... We were keeping them, most of us were keeping them because they were good hunters, because they were good pest controllers, whether that be in the city or in the, in the countryside. They're, they're very good at controlling uh, vermin, rats, mice, and so on. Then we suddenly changed our minds uh, about whether that was a good thing or not. But nevertheless, we had already tamed them to the point where they could live alongside us and act as companions and of course, the same, same with dogs. And, and there the relationship was more bound up with companionship because companionship was an essential part of the training of dogs. Whether people who train dogs would like to admit it or not, it is a very important part. The dog pays attention to you because it is a very specially evolved animal. Uh, you know, other animals do not pay attention to humans in the way that dogs do. 
So um, they were kind of just, they were there. They were doing something else, but uh, were very readily able to adapt to the role of companionship because they were already, they already understood humans to a certain extent in their own way, of course. Whereas most of the other species, uh, even the ones that you know, people keep as pets like rabbits and small furries and reptiles and fish and all those things, they're kind of, they haven't adapted, they haven't evolved to understand human behaviour in the way that those, those two species, the dog and the cat, really have, and a dog especially well, uh, slightly better than the cat. By the way, you note in the introduction of the book that in the United States, owners spent in the year 2014 an estimated $60 billion servicing the needs of their pets. That's an astonishing number. It is indeed. And of course, a lot of that, I mean, some of it's to do with food, but the the cost of feeding a pet animal has not increased greatly. There is more choice now than there was when I first started out uh, working in this area 35 years ago or so. Um, there wasn't quite the range of pet products in the supermarket that there are today, but that isn't, hasn't been a step change. The real step change has been in what some people have called the humanization or personalization of pets. Some of that is the kind of accessories you can get for pets nowadays. Then there's the whole business of pet services, particularly in relation to dogs. Uh, people are realizing, dog owners are realizing that maybe their dog does uh, not like being locked up in their apartment or their house all day while they're out at work. And so there's a whole industry of dog walkers and so on who, who help you take care of your dog. These are service people. Um, and then there is the enormous expansion in veterinary services for both animals, but I kind of even almost more cats than, than dogs. Um, Certainly, you know, when I, again, when I first started out 30 years ago, there was really no feline medicine anywhere in the world. Cats, uh, veterinarians treated cats as little dogs. That was a mistake. Cats' nutrition is different. Their diseases are different. Um, their reaction to anaesthetics and painkillers and, and a whole host of things are very different. And so the, the science of feline medicine was born and the specialist uh, small animal and then feline specialist feline veterinarians uh, became you know a, a, a legitimate route for a professional so that's been a huge change and of course um, that's all been paid for by the owners of the animals uh, none of this would have been possible if owners had not been prepared to spend a lot more on their animals than they had done in the past in the past you know that if a, if a cat or a dog became sick and especially if a cat became sick um the veterinarian would often just say well it's only a cat you know uh, euthanasia is probably this the kindest thing to do now there are a whole host of remedies some of which are extremely effective for keeping cats going when you know their kidneys are packed up i mean this is a very common thing in cats their kidneys are probably the most vulnerable organ in their bodies um and yet now we have diets and and, and drugs and so on which will keep a cat with failing kidneys going for many years in what we we can only assume is is reasonable comfort so that's where owners have changed they've changed in in the sense of personalizing their animals of thinking their animals as much closer members of the family much more valuable members of the family than they used to and uh, using their pocketbooks to back that up and let's continue with that thought john in your book you write these words quote over three quarters of u.s pets enjoy equivalent status to children and beyond that many people claim that pets especially dogs offer their owners health benefits. What does your research say on that? 
there was a big study done in Sweden. Swedish are very good at keeping health records. So there's a lot of data there, very reliable data about how long people are living and how sick they're getting and how many visits they make to the doctor and all those sorts of things. And if you take dog owners as a whole, then they seem to be in general healthier and live longer than people who've never had a dog or have not had a dog for many years. But when the the people who did the study drilled down into the data a bit more and looked at the kind of dog that people had, there were some extraordinary anomalies. So Swedish people who own Labrador retrievers seem to live longer than, than Swedish people who have other kinds of dogs or no dog at all. But Swedish people who have lab mixes die younger than the average. Now, that doesn't make any kind of sense if it's the dog doing the, the uh, you know, if the dog is really the cause of the of the increased lifespan. And, and what the people who study these things are arguing now is, well, there are so many lifestyle factors that can come in when you people do or do not decide to have a dog. I mean, there are loads of things they have to think about, and any one of those could tip the balance in favour of it. So these are groups that are choosing themselves. There are dog owners, people who've chosen to have a dog, and there are people who don't want to have a dog or can't have a dog because they live in the wrong side of place or whatever it may be. This is not like a drug trial where you know, some people are given a pill um, which has got the active ingredient in and other people are also given the same identical looking pill which has nothing in it at all and they're asked to report their symptoms. Um, but generally people kind of tend to confuse those two things um, and so they just say well if the, the dog must be the cause because that's what um, is, is being reported on and, and it's not that. There could be all sorts of different lifestyle differences and the more people look into lifestyle differences the, the more they realise that um, many of them have an effect on health and, uh, and therefore in, in, in when added together in terms of uh, how long people live and that a dog is just one of them. I'm not saying that having a dog isn't going to increase your lifespan but I think it, it, you know, a lot of other things have to come along with it and one of those is it has to be a very well behaved dog. Um, because having a badly behaved dog is a, quite a stressful thing to, to do to to have, and whether that's um, you know that's generally because the person who has the dog doesn't really kind of understand what they've got, or maybe they get the wrong advice over training or whatever it may be. So the having the dog is kind of pleasant when you're watching TV in the evening, the dog's curled up on your feet, and less pleasant when you're out. Uh, in the dog walking park uh, and your dog is growling at every other dog and you're having to apologise. So there are ways in which dogs could be health adjuncts to a healthy lifestyle, but just going and getting a dog is not going to do it. And when we return, more of John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. This is Our American Stories. with John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. We were just talking about how animals are members of the family, and along with that, you write, quote, dog and cat owners consistently overestimate their pets' other human qualities and mental capacities. Somehow, having a personal relationship with an individual animal seems to involve imbuing it with characteristics that science would restrict to our own species. Talk about anthropomorphism and animals, John. 
Well, I think anthropomorphism is a natural way that we deal, our brains, our minds deal with um, things that we don't understand. I mean, if, when you and I are talking to each other, we both assume that we kind of uh, are operating, our brains are similar, we operate from a similar base, that the language we use is the same. And that's a pretty good assumption, of course. So uh, I can imagine what you're thinking, you can imagine roughly what I'm thinking, and that works most of the time. But when it comes to animal minds, I mean, the carnivore mind, which is, obviously dogs and cats are both carnivores, they're both related mammals, um, they both have a brain which is completely different to ours. It's a mammalian brain and it has some structures in common. The, the basic emotions are all there. The pieces of the brain that generate our basic emotions like fear and anxiety and joy and, and happiness and all those sorts of things, um, they're all pretty much the same. But the thinking bit of the brain, the thing, the part that we humans kind of use all the time and probably swamps all the other bits of our brain in terms of what we consciously experience, uh, is much smaller in both cats and dogs than it is in us. That uh, that simple anatomical fact, and lots of studies that have been done of, uh, more recently, particularly dogs in MRI scanners, shown that the most likely kind of world that a dog lives in is one that is basically dominated by the present. It's like almost like a kind of Zen Buddhist existence where you're detached from the past and you're not worried about the future and you're existing in the moment and experiencing it very richly. And I think... For the best of our knowledge, and I'm sure that knowledge will improve, but for the best of our knowledge now, that's kind of a, a good way of thinking about um, a dog. So the dogs are not thinking back to something they did wrong or indeed something they did right yesterday, and they're not worrying about what's going to happen tomorrow, so much as they are living in the present and reading human body language, which is the thing that dogs are better at than humans are in many instances, and certainly better than any other animal species. So they are they're, they're living in the present and I think if we assume that, as some people do, it's a sort of shorthand to say dogs are like children in terms of the way they can they can think and so on. There's a certain amount of truth in that. Uh, otherwise, it would be you know it would be crazy to say it. But there's not enough truth, I think, to make it a general rule. I think it's much more instructive and much better for the dog or the cat if we think of them as animals that have a different kind of brain and therefore a different kind of subjective world to the one that we have. Now this is something which most owners I have to say in my experience have to be um, kind of led towards. They had not realised, there was no particular reason why they should, but they had not realised just how different the world is as perceived through the the, well, I was going to say the eyes of the dog, but of course, it's really the nose is the important organ as far as the dog is concerned. But of course, they'd use their eyes too. Their dog's world is not their world. Their cat's world is not their world. Physically, of course, it's the same. They're in the same room. But the messages that that room is giving them, uh, giving the human and the, and the pet, are quite different. Uh, and once you come to realise that, I think then stripping away some of the anthropomorphism is is beneficial to the animal and to the to the owner because the you know the, the the owner understands the animal, the animal then understands the owner better as well. But it builds the bond. And that's so true. I want you to talk about a guy named Antoine because he tried various pickup lines with women at a park with and without a dog. Talk about what we learned from this young man. 
Well, Antoine, uh, as his name implies, was French, and I don't think it's any coincidence that this study was done in France. Um, but uh, it, you know, leaving the humour aside, um, yeah, he was he was able to get more telephone numbers from young ladies that he he approached when he had the dog with him than when he didn't have the dog. Um, that taken on its own might might seem like a rather trivial study, but there have been all sorts of backup studies done in all sorts of different ways. Um, people standing on street corners and, and recording people spontaneously coming up to them. People setting up fake profiles on internet dating sites, um, which were which are identical, except uh, one of them has. Uh, in fact, the, the 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 particular one of the particular trials, the man who was seeking contacts was uh, basically his description was not particularly pleasant. It sounded like a rather a selfish kind of a guy, but uh, adding the phrase "and I've got a dog and I love my dog." to the description you know suddenly he's getting 10 times as many uh, approaches um, to his profile so there is a genuine I think uh, robust kind of effect where men and probably women it's just um, the, the research hasn't has really biased, has been biased in favor of, of women approaching men in this instance um, but we certainly can be sure that men acquire some kind of trustworthiness which uh, which the dog just having the dog gives them. I mean, the the person has no evidence that that you know this person is actually telling the truth. Or in the case of Antoine, uh, was that really his dog? Or, and did he look after the dog properly? Or well, did, or did he not? I mean, they, it's not really a question of detail. There's no detail there at all. Um, it's just the presence of the dog seems to make the person seem so much more approachable and trustworthy. And that is a that's a very odd thing. Why would a, an animal um, descended from a wolf? Uh, suddenly make um, people uh, trust you. And I think that goes back, way back, to something that, that that went on before even perhaps there was domestication, but certainly once there were domesticated dogs, because dogs were the first species to be domesticated, that men who were seen to be good with dogs, that was used as a proxy for, you know, that man is, is, is good with dogs. He knows how to empathise with a dog. So he probably knows how to empathise with A, women and B, with, with children. And so that made that man a better marriage prospect. Yep. In the chapter one of the family, you write this. The strength of the bond becomes most evident when a pet dies. And then you write this, which was fascinating. In the words of one 30-year-old lawyer after the death of her dog, quote, Before he died, I was so full of energy. My friends were amazed how many different things I was able to accomplish in a day. And now I'm exhausted and I can't even bring myself to pick up my son from nursery school. So I leave him there and his teacher takes him to her home to stay with her for a few nights. Talk about animals and death. Well, one of the unfortunate facts about pet keeping is that they have much shorter lifespans than we do. So having a pet die is something that almost every pet owner will experience. So it's probably not surprising that given that we do value the companionship of these animals so strongly that some people become grief stricken, almost literally, as in the example you've just quoted, um, at at the loss of the animal, the loss of the company, the change in routine. I mean, it's very similar to the, the loss of a close human family member. There are some key differences, though. One of them is that it uh, the studies have shown that it doesn't it can be just as acute, but it doesn't usually last quite as long. Uh, some some people will go on grieving for uh, the loss of human 
family members, particularly, I, I suspect, parents. But even worse, if, if somebody's child dies before they do, I think the, the grief can be extremely, not just extremely deep, but extremely long. It can last the whole the rest of that person's life. Grief for pets is not quite like that. Um, some people say I could, well, say at the time, or maybe even a month or two later, I can't, I couldn't possibly ever replace him or her. You know, he or she was a unique dog or cat, um, and there will never be another one like them. But then maybe a year later, you find that you know they have, they've been to the shelter uh, and and taken another dog or another cat or whatever, um, having recovered from the grief. Now we, you know, we don't do that with with humans. We do not deliberately seek out surrogate relationships or replacement relationships for the ones that we had with people who died. We regard those people as being utterly new, unique, I think, and irreplaceable. Whereas with pets, although we do regard them as personalities and having rights of their own, we, I think there is a some sort of blurring there as well. We do also regard them as being part as, as a dog uh, or a cat or whatever they would happen to be. And therefore, eventually, once the initial shock of losing the animals is gone, then, then we can uh, move on and, and replace them. And when we come back, the final installment of our conversation with John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human, available on Amazon.com. More after these messages. continue with john bradshaw author of the animals among us how pets make us human and john we've talked a lot about how we've elevated the role of animals in our lives but it's not all good all the time you wrote about leonard simon a psychoanalyst practicing in new york in the 1980s who interviewed hundreds of randomly selected pet owners this is what he said quote not everything i heard was benign with some people, I became convinced that their lives would have gone altogether differently and better if there had been no pet. All too often I heard of wasted years and stagnant lives in which almost everything a person did revolved around his animal. I heard of divorces that might never have happened, and I heard of some that probably should have happened long before, and after the pet died, they finally did. I heard of children that were neglected for the sake of a pet, I heard of children that might have been born if there had been no pet. I heard of children that were bitten by dogs that had given clear signs of serious jealousy, but whose owners were unable to part with them. Talk about this downside. Well, I think there's a bias in the reporting of pet ownership. Most of the people who study pet ownership are enthusiasts for it. There are few people, one or two, but they tend to be kind of marginalised, who are much more sceptical. But there the does seem to be a kind of relentlessly upbeat thing about, about pet ownership, which has been going on now for quite a long time. You know, it isn't straightforward. And I think the danger is that by putting a, a rose-tinted haze around pet, uh, pet ownership, there's a possibility, in fact, I've, I've seen it happen, of drawing people in who really have not thought too hard about the downside, the potential downsides, um, the difficulties, the expenditure, um, the, the, what, what to do if their dog is not the one that they hope, that does not have the personality they hoped it would have, all those kinds of things. So uh, 
there is a there is a risk to the pet i think if um or to the pet population anyway if if we um you know if we make pet pet ownership look too good and too beneficial uh, and that give the impression that you don't have to put too much effort in and you'll get loads of benefits because the reality is particularly with dogs is that you do have to put a lot of work in and the work the work is very rewarding i'm not saying it's not but i think there are some people who go into dog ownership without fully grasping the amount of effort they're going to have to take and the amount of money they're going to have to spend there's a long-running study in the uk called the mass observation project which started in world war ii believe it or not is still running so that this is basically uh, hinges on people who are recruited from all walks of life and write diaries and it doesn't tend to be based on questionnaires it's much more based on what people actually spontaneously want to say each year the, th- the theme of the of the project changes and a few years ago it, it was pets and a colleague of mine at Warwick University in the UK, Nikki Charles, did some extraordinarily groundbreaking work, which really mirrored what the New York study showed, which is that there are some people who talk about their animals, you know, as if they are members of the family and they wouldn't have been without them. But then you'll find uh, a widow saying, well, when my husband died, I was finally able to take his dog to the pound because he'd been a real nuisance and it had stopped us going on holiday and we wanted, I wanted to move house and we couldn't move house because of the dog. And now you know, I'm released from that and uh, I can move near my, my children and I, you know, I don't have to live the way I used to live. And the way I used to live was really dictated by my husband, but, but, and his, the way he lived was dictated by his dog. So there are equally uh, stories. They don't tend to get repeated very often. And I think that um, has, has kind of unbalanced the picture a bit. You note a bunch of doggy disputes and doggy hassles uh, that can make life worse for pet owners. And here are a bunch of them. What to do with the dog when going away on a holiday. The fact that the dog hasn't been walked or who should walk it. Whether the dog should be allowed on the bed. Whether the dog should be allowed upstairs. Who should clean up the mess in the backyard. Who should train the dog. Who should groom the dog. And my goodness, household damage caused by the dog. But despite all of that, you write this. Given all the hassles, obligations, and expense incurred by pet ownership, there must be a plus side. On balance, pets make us happy. Yeah, I think you know pets do make us happy, and that is, um, I think, if you just simply, it's 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 a truism. But I think it's you know like like a lot of truisms, it's true. You talk to pet owners, as I do, um, and they the first thing they really tell you. They may tell you in all sorts of different ways is that is the joy they get from the, the company of the animal. It's kind of a difficult thing to pin down and, and uh, people have tried to pin it down in terms of, of health benefits. I think that's missing the mark. I think the um, there is a um, the social side of it, the simple uh, fact that you have a companion who is reactive to you in a way that um, you've kind of worked out is going to work for, for you, the owner. I mean, you know, obviously... Dogs are not responsive, are more responsive than cats in general. Although there are some cats which are more responsive than the least responsive dogs. There's, but but in general, um, uh, people who want a relationship with an animal that is uh, they can pick up and put down. You know, they have busy lives, but they do want an animal to come home to in the evening. I mean, maybe they're just 
they find a relationship with a cat is better because they haven't got the hassles of uh, that come with particularly with owning a dog so those relationships kind of evolve and they work themselves out and um if they do work themselves out in the majority of courses they cases of course they do then there, there is a genuine sense of companionship and uh, and joy that people get from it why they get that joy, I think, is uh, is you know is a difficult question to answer. And one of the explanations that I've come up with in the book is that we f- we find these animals attractive, not just because they're cute, although undoubtedly they are, not just because we enjoy looking after them because we, because we do, but because they're hairy. Uh, and it's a it's a scientifically proven fact that when people sit down with their dog or their cat. Um, and everything else is good around them um, they find stroking the animal very relaxing um, and uh, there are, you know the, the physiology backs that up that it's not just they're not just making this thing these things up um, there is a genuine change in what's going on inside the body inside the heart inside the the, the hormones that are going around their bloodstream so um, this is a genuine change in in the the, the way the body is working and it's reflected, of course, in, in the emotional change that you feel more relaxed and happy about the world. Now let's close things off with the uh, last story in the book, and it's a personal one, John, and it, regards, and it relates to your granddaughter, Beatrice. Talk about that. Beatrice is a, well, she's my granddaughter. I, I would say that, of course, that she's a very bright girl, but um, she has a fascination for animals, which I'm, I'm not surprised she has. Um, but because I think many children of her age do, and they, in the classroom, part of the, the program um, was to bring in some, some hen's eggs that were going to hatch. They kept them in an incubator in the classroom and then every morning they'd go in to see how many of the eggs had hatched and one or two instances the eggs actually hatched during school time and they could watch it happening. And so this, you know, is, is a, I think, um, is for urban children like Beatrice. She lives in the town. She doesn't see a lot of animals. Is, is essential to understanding where things really, you know, how things really work, that not everything comes out of uh, of, a, of an iPad or a phone or whatever, that, that there is... Real life is is there, and it's 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 messy and uh, and you know and, and fascinating at the same time. Um, so she and all her classmates were absolutely fascinated by these these chicks that emerged. Um, I mean, they're little fluffy things. Obviously, they're very cute. Uh, they make little peeping noises, which I think are part of their appeal, and they move in a kind of clumsy way. So that they're cute because they move like babies. So um, so that you know is, is all part of the is all part of the appeal. But it, it does show, I think, how it. These things, are, they didn't have to be encouraged to do it. Um, these are things that are intrinsically fascinating and that human beings do have uh, an instinctive fascination for animals. I'm not sure, sure we all do because there does seem to be some genetically based variation, but um, the majority of us do. And I think for the future, then we need to, to nurture this particular instinct because if we don't, I think children will grow up with no empathy for animals because they really don't understand what they are. Uh, they just see them in two dimensions on a TV screen or whatever. Um, they don't understand just how real a real animal is uh, in, in the sense that, um, you know, it, it's there and you can smell it and you can hear it and see it and touch it, uh, uh, which is so much more real than, than the, the best simulations that we can generate through computers today. And thanks to John Bradshaw for joining us and spending this time with us. And special thanks to him writing the book, The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. Go out and order it on Amazon and buy two. Get one for a friend. 
I'm promising you they'll say thank you. There are so few books that can hold your attention on a subject so big and so smart and so close to all of our hearts because I don't know many people who hate animals, and they're odd ducks to me. And by the way, if you get a chance, go to Our American Network. We've done a lot of really good book interviews. They're all up there for you to listen to free, to download onto your phone, listen on a long drive. Kicks, the great American story of sneakers, is one of my favorites, and it tells the story of American leisure time in the 20th century, actually. Another great one of beards and men, the revealing history of facial hair, and that's by Christopher Olston Moore. We also spent an hour with Richard Zacks, who wrote Chasing the Last Laugh, How Mark Twain Escaped Debt and Disgrace with a Round-the-World Comedy Tour. We also spent an hour with David McCullough on the Wright Brothers, one of the best books that I've ever read. And my goodness, it just doesn't get better than that story of these two sort of crazy bicycle mechanics from Dayton, Ohio. And they are the ones, oddly enough, who get first to flight. Not all those PhDs and scientists and fancy pants trying to get to space first and fly first. Also, 50 Inventions That Shaped the Modern World by Tim Harford. And another personal favorite, Foolproof, Why Safety Can Be Dangerous and How Danger Makes Us Safe. And that's from the economics editor of the Wall Street Journal, Greg Ipp. All of those books available on OurAmericanNetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and thank you to John Bradshaw, author of The Animals Among Us, How Pets Make Us Human. This is Our American Stories. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and it's time for our Rule of Law series, and we've done several, Magna Carta, the Declaration of Independence, the U.S. Constitution, and now we join Alex Cortez, who brings us our latest in the Rule of Law series. I tell more people today that if a dairy farmer goes to a psychiatrist and lays on that bench and that psychiatrist asks him questions before you're done, he's going to want to commit you. Because there's got to be something wrong with you. To be clear, this Maryland dairy farmer Randy Sowers is, including himself, in that category too. There absolutely has to be something wrong with somebody that deals with what we deal with every day for no more than we get out of it. We bought these farms three years ago I mean, it's just going to be a burden on me and my kids to get these farms paid for. And then if their kids, you know, decide to stay in farming, one of these days they might, you know, get some benefit from them. But right now the farms are costing us more than we can make off of them. There's farmers dropping over. I think the bank sent 10 notices out last week of foreclosures. We've got a neighbor up here they foreclosed on in January. It's like land. You don't make farmers usually. I mean, farmers are born and raised and they know what to do and they have the heart to do it. I mean, most people, you know, wouldn't even consider doing what we do, and it's seven days a week. I mean, you don't get a break. For 38 years that I've been doing this, 
I've gotten up as early as 11.15 at night to milk. Wait, did he just say get up at night? Who gets up at night? Besides folks, of course, who have night shifts, but that's not Randy's situation. Well, I try to get to bed by 7 or 7.30. It's pretty hard when it's still light outside, but that's what I have to do. In early years, I didn't have any help. I was getting at 11.15, then I'd get done about 7 or 8 in the morning. And I'd sleep till 10 o'clock and get up and get back to work. But the last 20 years, we've been getting up at midnight, me and my wife, and we milk the first shift of cows, and we usually get back home about 4 o'clock. We don't milk them all anymore, but we do milk the first shift because what I found out was over the years when I depend on somebody else to get in there early, they don't show up, and then it makes the whole day go bad. So I just decided I might as well just do it myself. That way you get the day started, and the people supposed to, you know, come after me. They better be there. I'm going to go get them out of bed because I know where they are. Since we retired in December, we ended up five mornings a week, but the other two we do farmer's markets. It's pretty nice through the winter, though, because we don't have the one Sunday market through the winter, and I got to sleep in on Sunday morning. <laughs> Some idea of retirement. <laughs> and a couple of years ago, his government tried to throw him an early retirement party. So we were had a store on the farm, and we were doing farmer's market, and we were handling a lot of cash. And we just deposited it in the bank. I always wondered whether the government should ever show up someday. I wanted to know where all the cash came from, which it didn't bother me because I knew it was all legal, so I didn't worry about it too much. Paid taxes on it, just like anything else. I mean, we were depositing it in the bank every week. Uh, this summer, we were doing probably five farmers markets a week, and we were bringing in somewhere around that 10,000 mark every week. I mean, Sometimes we went over that, and sometimes we had special events, and this one particular time, we had our festival, so we had a lot of money to deposit that week, and she went in. She being Randy's bride and partner, Karen. Went in and tried to deposit, it was twelve dollars or $14,000 or something like that, and the bank took it, but the teller told her, you know, it would help her out if you keep these deposits under $10,000, and she would not have to fill out paperwork. So that's what my wife did. Not knowing that a federal law called the Bank Secrecy Act requires banks to report all transactions, $10,000 and up, to the federal government. A law originally intended to make it easier to find folks who were laundering money, running illegal drug and gambling operations, and to charge them with much larger crimes. But it still was unwise for this bank teller to have the Sowers do this because technically, although rarely pursued, what they did was an illegal act on its own. What they call structuring. Structuring your deposits so that they're below the reporting requirement. So it was definitely every Monday she was putting in 9500 to $9,900 in cash in this account for 32 weeks. So we had a lawyer on staff at that time, and he was there that morning. February 29th, 2012. For some reason, he just left. And the store called me and said there was some government people over there that needed to talk to me. And I went in there, was two treasury agents. 
you know, showing me their badges and they had their guns on and, you know, one talked to me about a banking account. So I tried to call my lawyer right away and he didn't answer the phone. So I just, like I said, I still didn't have a problem because I didn't think I had anything to hide. So when they sat down at the office and they started asking me questions, I don't know what the questions were anymore except for the last one they asked me. He said, where'd you get all this cash? And they knew about the Sowers' cash because through a controversial legal maneuver called civil asset forfeiture, they had already seized his bank account with $63,000 in it at the time without even convicting him of a crime, which turns upside down a fundamental principle of the rule of law, innocent until proven guilty. Randy was made guilty before anything was proven. Although these IRS agents didn't tell Randy that they had seized his bank account, yet they still needed to trap him. And um, I said, well, you know, we do store and farmer's markets and you know, some weeks we get as much as twelve or $14,000. Well, they didn't ask me any more questions after that because that's the only answer the question they needed me to answer to say that sometime I had more than 10 and I wasn't depositing it. The government agents tricked Randy and got him to admit to committing a crime that he didn't even know was a crime. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? And when we come back, more of this remarkable story, Randy Sowers' story, here on Our American Stories. Our American Stories, and we're back with our rule of law story on the federal government seizing the bank account of a dairy farmer, Randy Sowers, and for simply following his bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold that legally requires her to file lengthy paperwork to the government. Let's pick up where we last left off. Think about this question. Should the government be able to go after you for a crime that you don't know is a crime? Well, in 1994, the Supreme Court said that the answer was no. That the word willfully in the Bank Secrecy Act should be interpreted as a person who knew that it was illegal to structure payments below the reporting threshold. It wasn't simply enough to show that the defendant knew about the reporting requirement, which the Sowers didn't really know either. The teller just told them that it would help her avoid the paperwork. But this ruling was unacceptable to government prosecutors, and they convinced Congress to amend the wording of the Bank Secrecy Act so that they could prosecute Americans like Randy who don't know that structuring is illegal. So they had me on structuring because 
Not that I knew there was a law that I said I had to deposit every cent I got every week. Maybe I spent it on something else that week. You know, and it still didn't have more than $10,000, but it really didn't matter to them. And they were pretty nice, I guess nice. But they said, you know, we can see you're a legitimate business. We really don't think you're a laundering money launderer or drug dealer or nothing like that. But now, since it's gone this far, you're going to have to go through the system to see if you can get your money back gone this far as their boss, then Maryland's U.S. attorney, Rod Rosenstein, was already committed to the case, and there's no way that they thought that they could get him to back down on it. A judge had already issued a warrant for the seizure of Randy's bank account. Randy's money was this close to being theirs. Once they knew that I was not a drug dealer or a money launderer. They should have just gave me my money back and thanked me for my service to this country. And that would have been the end of it. But they don't, they got your money and they want it. And you know, over this period of time, it's not the IRS that gets a lot of that money. It's the local people that, you know, find this problem. They get their cut too. Everybody gets their cut. That's how they make their budgets. So if they take all that money away, how are they gonna pay their, you know, all these, uh, things they get because of all the structuring money. And the Department of Justice in Maryland is particularly active in pursuing this structuring money. In the fiscal year 2011, Maryland brought 14 of the nation's 99 structuring cases, 14% of them, even though they only make up 1.8% of the nation's population. So supposedly, Maryland citizens are eight times more likely to be committing crimes than the rest of us, or something else is going on. Rod Rosenstein is on the record as saying that anti-structuring efforts are, quote, an increasing area of emphasis for the Justice Department, and there has been an influx of resources to investigate it. Thus, I'd be disappointed if there wasn't an uptick in prosecution. So my lawyer called whoever the prosecutor was on the case. Rod Rosenstein actually was the Department of Justice in Maryland at the time. So I'd like to see him go to jail now. I'll go visit him. But he called him. One of Rod's deputies. He said, well, that's the way it goes. I mean, we'll, we'll negotiate and, you know, we'll probably keep half that money. We might even be able to negotiate that down some, but, you know, usually, you know, we'll negotiate some kind of a, a deal. Treating it all too casually, like it's negotiating something at a garage sale, not $30,000 of a business's of families livelihood so somehow and i don't know how it all came down but there was another lawyer that showed up and he'd been you know working on this structuring thing for a long time but they all told me you know to keep my mouth shut and not tell anybody about it well i didn't call the newspapers but when i went to the farmers markets that weekend everybody knew that the government stole my money Everybody walked up the table and they only know how my week goes. I told them the story. <laughs> and they were, they, they couldn't believe it. So it wasn't too long after that that uh, 
I got a call from the Baltimore City Paper, and he was questioning me about, you know, this, because he saw the docs come out of the federal court in Baltimore. And I said, you know, I'd love to tell you this story, but my lawyer said, till we get this thing settled, I better just not say nothing. But that's what the government wanted everybody to do, say nothing, so they can steal your money and nobody knows what's going on. So uh, he said, well, you know, that's the way you want to look at it, but I'm going to do this story and it don't look good on your part. If I write from what the government says. So his government's allowed to speak about him, but they say that he's not allowed to respond? Because people already thought we'd done something wrong. I mean, everybody. Her, her parents thought we'd done something wrong. I think my parents might have <laughs> thought we'd done something wrong. And so I told him the whole story. So <clears throat> when we got our settlement papers, you know, we knew from the case on the Eastern Shore with the uh, Taylor family. We knew what their settlement was, but my settlement was different. I was going to admit that I did something wrong in the settlement, and I wasn't going to do it. So when my lawyer called them, he says, because your client went to the press. And he sent us an email that said it. Rosenstein's deputy, Stefan Casella, actually wrote an email that they were treated differently because, quote, Mr. Taylor did not give an interview to the press, admitting as clear as day that the government is acting according to a rule of vengeance, not according to the American promise of the rule of law. So he said wasn't going to do be any negotiating. You know, they were keeping close to $30,000 and it wasn't any negotiating now since I went to the press. If we would have fought them, if we would have fought them, they would have got, took the whole $360,000 we deposited in that checking account that year. So that was another thing they were holding against us. They said, you can fight us, but you know, you're not going to win and then we're going to want $360,000. This is what you call blackmail. Either pay us 30000 or we're going to come after you for more, 360000 And by the way, fighting us in court will cost you a lot more than 30000 So you might as well just pay us right now. A pretty good business to be in if you're the government. They can do this all day long and do. But not a great business proposition if you're Randy and Karen especially when you're trying to do your actual business of farming. It's a no-win situation for them. They lose no matter what. So the Sowers decided to forfeit $30,000 of their seized money to the government and try to move on with their lives. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You can't fight them. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases, and my lawyer got me in contact with them, and they came out and we had a meeting about it. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. And when we come back, we're going to hear what happens when liberty lawyers get involved, and that's what the Institute for Justice's lawyers are. They protect people's property rights from the government and always remember why the constitution was formed because we all know that most of our cops and prosecutors are good guys 
But the bad ones? And boy, there were some bad ones here, folks. And you know it, right? You know it. When we come back, the law on behalf of the citizens starts to take action. Randy Sauer's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org, give us your email address, and we will send you our five best stories of the week. And they'll be in transcript form, so you can read them or you can listen to them. And by the way, if you have your story about government power coming in on your life, if you've settled on an IRS form, if you settled for something when you didn't think you were guilty, Send those stories to us. We'll run them down. Because this is happening all over the country, and it's happening a lot more than you think. Again, this is Our American Stories. When we return, the dairy farmer, Randy Sowers, shaken down by his own government. A guy just trying to get along every day like the rest of us. Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we're back with the final portion of our rule of law story on the federal government seizing over $30,000 of dairy farmer Randy Sauer's money for simply following his own bank teller's request to make deposits below a $10,000 threshold. And now, let's get back to the story. Farmers don't have time to go out and fight it. You surely can't fight the government. But in the meantime, Institute for Justice had been working on some of these cases. But since my case was already settled, they just really wasn't a whole lot they could do. But it was probably a year or two later when I got a call from the House Ways and Means Committee and said they were, they were having a hearing on structuring. Anyone know if I would testify? And this was only like two or three days before, you know, the it happened. And... I think, you know, they were trying to get people to testify, but they're still afraid to testify. Understandably afraid of putting the government's target on their back again. Randy told Congress that he would testify in their big city, only 90 minutes away from his home, but one that the Sours didn't like to go to. Oh, and very, we delivered milk down there a couple times. But, yeah, that wasn't fun. Yeah. So what we do, we'd milk and then we'd get in the car and we'd go down to the Institute for Justice uh, Arlington, office in Arlington and we'd park and then sleep in the car for a couple hours so we didn't have to deal with the traffic. And then they would take us to the to D.C. for the hearings. Yeah, we ate high hops on the way down, but... It doesn't get any more American than that. Milking in the middle of the night, driving still in the middle of the night to avoid traffic. Then you got to make some time for IHOP. Then just a little bit of sleep in a parking lot while you don't shower before you testify before some congressmen who are in fancy suits and ties while you in a checkered short sleeve shirt 
no suit, no jacket, no tie, you take on your government. So me and two other guys testified, and that was an eye-opening experience too. And all those, all those congressmen and senators on that committee, I mean, they were beating that guy from the IRS. And, but he, he could he could take it and not ever answer a question. Just sit there like there was nothing, you know. Well, it really wasn't me that did this, you know, it was somebody else, but they just kept passing the buck. So um, Institute for Justice filed something to get our money back. They filed a petition for remission or mitigation, which are requests for the government to relieve them from a past judgment. Institute for Justice's petition was clear. No American should have their money taken from them just because they deposited it in so-called wrong amounts that they didn't know were wrong. And over 10 months passed without a single response from the government. So to ramp up pressure, the House Ways and Means Committee, in a bipartisan fashion, both Democrats and Republicans were outraged by this story, called back both Randy and the government to testify again. That second House Ways and Means Committee meeting, and they were demanding that guy from Justice and IRS to give us our money back. Like I say, they were sitting there like it was just water off their back. They didn't care. But behind the scenes, they did care. They were made to care. They were sweating the negative attention this brought them. Finally, we got our money back, and we were probably the first ones that's ever gotten any, their total amount back. I don't know. They said they apologized. <coughs> they never <coughs> apologized to us for anything. Five years. That's how long it took to get their money back. The Sowers' money could have been put to use making their business more money, hiring more workers, and paying their workers more. But the government doesn't pay a fine or interest to account for this fact. To account for the fact that because of inflation, the Sowers' $30,000 became less than $30,000 while the government was holding it for them. So, I believe in God. I am where I am today because God tells me what to do and I listen to him. And the reason why, you know, I fight the government and nobody else will is two things in the Bible. Because God says, no hand held against you will prosper. And in the 23rd Psalm, it says, he prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. And that's what he does. It's just, you know, you have to win. Today, you hire lawyers, they're not out there to win. They're out there to get together and compromise and say, okay, if we do it this way, you'll make this much money and I'll make this much money. We don't have to fool around in court and file this paperwork, but we're all gonna make money. But then nobody ever wins. And you have to win. This country that we know is not like it used to be. And it's gonna be nothing is what it's gonna be. It's gonna be just like any other country. You're not gonna have any rights. You're not going to run a business. And that's why Randy is so grateful that the Nonprofit Institute for Justice is there fighting to win. For him and for the over 200 other citizens whom the government 
had their backs up against the wall and couldn't afford to fight them until Institute for Justice took up their case at no cost to them and with no reward ever going to the nonprofit. Institute for Justice is a bunch of young lawyers that are concerned about this country. And I've met a good many of them and they all have the same outlook. I mean, they're not out there to make a lot of money. I don't know, I have no idea how much money they make, I don't care. Most all their money comes in donations from people that like what they see and not people like me because I don't have a lot of money to give them. I mean, people think I have a lot of money. I mean, so now I live in a big house, but you know, the house came with the land we bought. You know, I didn't really want the house, it's too big. That's why I'm living there, just two of us, because nobody else wanted to live in it. But, you know, the people, what people think about farmers is, is ridiculous because they think you're rich because you got big machines and it costs a lot of money and that's why you're not rich, because you gotta have those machines to do what you do. And great work as always, Alex. And what a story. By the way, a major bank CEO confidentially told us that the government has essentially forced them into being their own private snooping army, with their compliance departments having to mine their customers' accounts for what the government might deem suspicious activity, giving them no choice but to report many innocent citizens like Randy Sowers to the government for investigation. The CEO said that this forced snooping sweeps up far more information than anything that the NSA did related to phone records, and yet has received almost zero attention. And that's what we're doing here in Our American Stories, bringing this story to your attention. There's also a big problem of selective prosecution here. The government has seized the bank accounts of innocent farmers like Randy Sowers, but refused to charge politicians like former New York Attorney General Elliot Spitzer, who was actually guilty of structuring his payments to prostitutes. And you bet he knew what structuring was. There's bipartisan legislation out there, folks, and it's sponsored by Democrats like Congressman Sheila Jackson Lee and Republicans like Senator Ted Cruz. And that doesn't happen too often. So that's how bad this prosecutorial abuse is, folks. Of course, that would change the statute so that you can't be charged for a crime that you don't know is a crime. It's called mens rea, folks. It's the heart of criminal law. If you don't know a crime's a crime, you can't be charged with it. This is Lee Habib, Randy Sauer's story, and thank goodness for the Institute for Justice. Look them up, folks. Give them some money. They do great, great work protecting property rights for Randy and maybe one day for people like you. Again, this is Our American Stories. We continue with our American stories, and this next one, well, we always think of Hillsdale College when we tell any stories about American history, and Hillsdale is as fine a place as any in this country to send a young person to learn about the country, about Western Civ, about all the things that matter in life, all the things that are beautiful in life, 
And if you can't get to Hillsdale, Hillsdale will come to you with their free and terrific online courses. Go to hillsdale.edu. That's hillsdale.edu. Few stories are as compelling, as complex, and as mystifying as that of Benedict Arnold. After all, it's a story ripe with moral ambiguity. He was both the greatest of heroes and the darkest of villains. Here's Greg Hengler with the story. Benedict Arnold is hands down America's most infamous turncoat. He has been dead for over 200 years, and his name is still shorthand for traitor, as we've seen exemplified in movies like Grumpier Old Men. You traitor, you Benedict Arnold! In spite of his ultimate deception, Benedict Arnold remains one of the most gifted generals America has ever known. Ironically, if it had not been for his prowess and military genius, America might never have been victorious in the Revolutionary War. In May of 1775, Arnold led an attack on the remote British outpost at Fort Ticonderoga. Quick-tempered and strong-willed, Arnold joined forces and immediately clashed with Ethan Allen, the leader of a small militia of frontiersmen known as the Green Mountain Boys. The fort is captured thanks mostly to Benedict Arnold that forces the British to abandon Boston. Both Allen and Arnold wrote extensive reports about the events to the colonial committees. But they only accepted Allen's glorified version that barely mentions Arnold. This would be the beginning of a pattern in Arnold's military career that would repeat itself. Arnold is later given the impossible task of defending New York's Lake Champlain from attack. He constructs the first American naval fleet of 15 small war vessels to engage the British at Valcour Island in October of 1776. Although he was not victorious, his efforts not only established the American Navy, but severely delayed the advancement of the world's finest navy into American territory, allowing Washington's army time to rebuild and resupply. In spite of his aggressive and heroic achievements, the Continental Congress refused to recognize Arnold, and he was passed over for promotion in favor of junior officers with far less military achievement. George Washington, who was Arnold's close friend and one of the few men who came to his defense, took issue with the Continental Congress's decision, rebuking them for making political rather than strategic military promotions. Here's Washington biographer Adrian Harrison. Washington appreciates the personal sacrifice that Arnold made and the leadership that he used. He sees Arnold's pain, and Washington has really no love for the Continental Congress either. They're not doing a great job supplying him. In September of 1777, Arnold was placed under the command of Horatio Gates at Saratoga in upstate New York. Gates, while never coming within a mile of the fighting, held Arnold back confining him to his tent and refused reinforcements. Defying Gates' orders, Arnold seized a horse and rallied the Americans to victory and took a bullet to the leg and barely survived after being crushed by his own horse. However, it is this shot that will change the course of history and nearly alter the course of independence. Here's Arnold biographer 
Willard Randall. When the battle was over, his second-in-command said, Sir, where are you hit? And Arnold said, It's my leg. I wish it had been my heart. And I do, too. I wish it had been his heart, because if he had died at that moment, he would have been the great hero of the revolution. The battles of Saratoga are considered by many historians to be one of the top 15 most decisive battles in world history because it becomes the impetus for France to join the Americans against Britain, reinvigorating Washington's Continental Army and providing much-needed supplies and support, saving the revolution once again. Here's historian Paul Hutton. Carried from the battlefield, terribly wounded, Arnold was immediately placed under arrest for having disobeyed orders. But the day is won. It's clear to everyone on the battlefield that Benedict Arnold has won the day. Clear to everyone except Horatio Gates. He denies Arnold credit. He accepts credit for America's greatest victory. General Washington steps in and entrusts the newly reclaimed city of Philadelphia to Arnold. He is now the city's military governor. Away from the battlefield, Arnold takes full advantage of his position, living opulently while using and abusing his position running shady business deals in a lively black market. He has served, he has been wounded severely, and so he starts as a governor to take what he thinks is his due. It is here in April 1779 where the 38-year-old Arnold meets and marries a beautiful, flirtatious, and intense 18-year-old from a very wealthy loyalist family. Her name is Peggy Shippen. Here's Arnold historian William Stanley. Arnold was to the British what Rama was to the English, what Patton was to the German. In other words, a general who could defeat them. The British wanted Arnold out of there. Without Arnold, they'd win. But Arnold's shady side deals are exposed by the press. Once again, Arnold faces a slight against his honor. With an impending court-martial and a public rebuke from General Washington, Arnold and his young bride begin exploring options for disaffection. Despite his reprimand, Washington wants to give his brilliant general a field position of honor. But... After Arnold suspiciously lobbies strongly for a non-field position at West Point, in the fall of 1780, Washington makes him the commander of the strategic American stronghold known as the Key to the Continent, a fort on the front lines that bears his own name, Fort Arnold. West Point becomes Arnold's key negotiating resource. Many historians claim he even conspired to turn over General George Washington himself. Here's former superintendent of the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, Lieutenant General Dave Palmer. West Point was not just a strategic spot. West Point was the strategic spot in the American Revolution. Both sides, British and Americans, agreed on one thing, that if the British could ever capture the line of the Hudson, they would probably win the war. 
It doesn't take long for Arnold's secret plot to be unearthed, causing him to flee West Point for a British warship stationed on the Hudson. Ironically, at this same hour, General Washington was en route to West Point to feast with his trusted friend. Arnold's betrayal is so unexpected and cuts General Washington so deeply that after failing to capture Benedict Arnold, Washington proclaimed, Arnold has betrayed me. Whom can we trust now? Safely behind British lines, Benedict Arnold receives his 20,000 pounds ransom payment and a commission as Brigadier General of 1,600 troops in His Majesty's Army. Benjamin Franklin remarked, Judas sold only one man, Arnold, three million. Benedict Arnold's treason united the 13 colonies and increased their enlistments and re-enlistments in ways that neither he nor the British could have ever foreseen. Benedict Arnold died in London in 1801 at the age of 60, a spiritually, financially, and emotionally broken man. There's a monument on the battlefield at Saratoga National Park, the site of his greatest victory, a boot statue commemorating the permanent wounds General Benedict Arnold sustained with the inscription, in memory of the most brilliant soldier of the Continental Army, who was desperately wounded on this spot, winning for his countrymen the decisive battle of the American Revolution and for himself the rank of Major General. The monument bears no name, and there's good reason. Because there is a law in America passed by the Congress that you can neither chisel the name Benedict Arnold or mold it in metal. So, I mean, they took this guy right off the face of the earth. Benedict Arnold's betrayal is profound. At the same time, America would have never emerged successfully from the Revolutionary War had it not been for his innovative leadership. Here's former military historian at West Point, Major John Hall. Were it not for his treason, he would almost undoubtedly be one of the most celebrated American commanders of all of the American Revolution. West Point to this day would probably still be called Fort Arnold rather than West Point. In the years following his death, Arnold's wife Peggy spent her time settling all of his debts, except the biggest one of all, to America which could never be paid. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler and to all the supporters and contributors to this show. Without their help, this isn't possible. And thanks, as always, to Hillsdale College for all the work that they do. Benedict Arnold's story, a rich, complicated, and ultimately tragic one, here on Our American Stories.